Hey, murder lovers, my name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. All right, everyone. So today we are doing Patreon suggested cases. This one was suggested by Victoria, a Patreon that submitted a couple stories, and this one definitely stood out to me. So I am covering the case of Michael Curry today. And in the email, she did write that she actually lived in the neighborhood in college where this took place. Um, she didn't know till afterwards that this is where she was in living. She was living in the same neighborhood, um, but just really interesting to her. And thanks, Victoria, for bringing this case to us. Thank you, Victoria. All right. So this is a case of Michael Curry, the Curry family. This happened in Georgia. And... It takes place in 1985. So before the unfateful day of August 29th, 1985, where these murders happened, Michael and Ann Curry had been married for a couple of years and they had their small but growing family. They, there was Erica, a four-year-old, Ryan, a one-year-old, and Anne was currently pregnant with their third child, who they knew at this time was going to be a boy and had already picked out a name for him. His name was going to be Tyler. Now, on August 29th, 1985, it was a normal day by all accounts. And Michael, the husband, was a maintenance supervisor at the Bradley Center. It was a nearby hospital, and he worked specifically in the medication center. This was a hot day in Georgia. It was about, it was high 80s that day outside. So I can't imagine... You've been to that area. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's, it's swampy toasty. and hot and gross. Michael says that on that day of August 29th, 1985, he went to work. He left for work at around 730 that morning. Once he got to work, he said that one of the offices in the hospital, their AC wasn't working all the way correctly. So he was going to go and get them a fan so they can just have some air movement in that room. So he left work. At around 9.40 a.m. to go look for a fan for them. And from there, he went to Sears. And because he was buying this for the hospital, once he said that once he got to Sears, there was no credit for him. And so he had to go to a different store. He said he stopped by a nearby construction site and was just fascinated by the construction that was going on and just stood there and watched it for a little bit. After that, he ended up going to Montgomery Ward. And also said that they didn't have any fans. And it wasn't until he went to Kmart in the early afternoon where he found a six-inch oscillating fan. Receipt from that day shows a timestamp of 12.55 p.m. Okay. And he says he got back to work at around 1.10 or 1.15 after buying this fan. He finished off his day and then went home around 5.30 in the afternoon. Once he got home... What he found was a terrible, terrible sight. His wife and two kids had been murdered. From there, he ran out of the house and he ran over to his neighbor's house. And he said very calmly, they killed my family. Who's they? Exactly. Yeah. So the neighbor's like, the neighbor whose name is Paul Gable Jr. He had just gotten home from work that day. So he was still in the near nearby the front door when Michael came knocking. And so Paul Jr. told his mom, call 911. 
So they called 911 right away. He said that while they called 911, Michael had been sat down in a chair and was rocking violently. He was like unconsolable, inconsolable at this time. I mean, that's what I would expect. Hopefully. Yeah. It's just the whole like calmness at the beginning that's odd to me. So then he said that when Paul approached him again, this is when Michael became violent with Paul and threw him up against the wall and yelled, they killed my fucking family. So there was a little bit of a scuffle between them again because Paul mm-hmm. wanted to like get a hold of him, sit him back down. And then the police came. The police immediately talked to Michael, tried to figure out what's going on. They hadn't even been to the Curry house yet. And he was so out of control that they even had to put him in handcuffs just to like calm him down and like get him under control. Mm-hmm. The police then went over to the Curry house and found the gruesome scene. In the kitchen den area, there laid Anne, Erica, and Ryan's body. They had all been murdered with a bush axe. What is a bush axe? A bush axe is about 20 inches long and is usually used to cut brush or cut through brush. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was laying in the crime scene along with the victims full with blood. Anne had multiple lacerations and punctures to the head, neck, and upper torso. Her neck muscles had been completely obliterated to the point where she was nearly decapitated. And reminder, she was eight months pregnant at this time Mm. with what was supposed to be their third kid. Yeah. Erica, the four-year-old girl, had also multiple lacerations across her head and her face, her mouth, And her palate and teeth, along with her glasses, were all scattered in the room. So little four-year-old Erica's teeth were scattered in the room. Just awful. Now Ryan, he was 20 months old at the time, so about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. He also had several lacerations across the head. He had bruising on his upper torso. He had a skull fracture. That was his his cause of death. And from what it seemed, little Ryan was trying to leave the room at the time when he was attacked because his little hands were gripping shag carpet pointing towards the door. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Now, Anne's cause of death was massive blood loss. And Erica's was also skull fractures. Okay. So at this point, they're trying to figure out who done it. Right. Mm -hmm. They take him into questioning. So this happened around 530. The police had gotten there by 538 p.m. By 9 p.m. They had put him in an interrogation room and they were asking him routine questions. Do you have any idea who could have done this? Is there any reason that you believe anyone could have done this? He although he did admit to financial problems between the family or in the family He said that there was no marital problems, and the only thing that seemed out of place in the last couple of weeks was that Anne had received an obscene phone call, anonymously. Did not say who or what had been said. Anne's mother, Bernice, did confirm later on that her daughter had talked to her and said she'd received an obscene phone call, but there's no details about what this call was. It sounds a lot like um, the Eastburn murders, where they were getting those pranks. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Dirty phone calls. So they're asking him 
you know, what was, does he have any reason why anyone would have done this at this time? He's not, he's, he's not saying anything. And he also refuses a lie detector test, which is normal. We know that's not even admissible. Um, but also if you're the husband of your whole family that just got murdered, you, anyway, that's just my opinion. Just, just do it. But that's just my opinion. (laughs) Um, so at the scene itself, there's a couple of things that are worth noting. There is absolutely no signs of break-in. Anne's purse was found on the ground. Everything was dumped out of it, but absolutely nothing was missing. There was a smaller, like, clutchy purse inside the big purse that had all of her money and all of her cards and all those things. None of it was missing. There was a second purse that was known to family and friends as an old purse of Anne's that she used as a plaything, so that the little girl used oh, as a okay. plaything for dress up. Yeah, playing yeah. dress up with the little with the purse. Um, it was also there, but you you know if someone is breaking in and trying to find money, you think they would take any purse that they yeah, see. Yeah, so it's not a robbery. So it's not a robbery. There's clearly a checkbook out where anyone could see it. The TV, the stereo. This is 1985, so the stereo system, everything is completely undisturbed. All the windows and the doors are completely locked. There's an overturned trash can, and this is important. I'll try and make sure that I that I describe it correctly, but there's an overturned trash can that's blocking the kitchen's outside door from the outside. So it's a trash can outside? The trash can is outside. Okay. And it's toppled over, but the kitchen door opens towards the outside. Okay. So had someone either left through that door, that trash can would have inevitably been moved. Unless they threw it down behind them as they were leaving. Possibly. There was in the den, so the den and the kitchen are connected. There's a multi-glass pane door. There's a broken pane in this in this door. Okay. The glass is on the outside. So it's obvious that it was broken from the inside. inside. And again, it was one of those things where the doors opened towards the outside and none of it was disturbed to show that anyone moved the door after the glass had been broken. Okay. So very important things. Here's also a really weird thing. Like I'd mentioned earlier, it was a very hot, muggy day in Georgia, high 80s. The thermostat in the house was set to the maximum heat to 90 plus degrees. That's toasty. It's gross. Yeah. So the... the I mean, that's my kind of weather. I like it. (laughs) I like it as warm as possible, but... But you don't set your... No, no, no. ...to 90. No. Also, who can afford that life? Right. So... (laughs) So I'm going to go back a little bit to tell you... uh, To try and make sense of the timeline. So earlier that day, when he... When Michael left to work... He knew that Anne was going to be going to her mom's house, Bernice Johnson's house, and dropping off the smaller kid, Ryan, while her and Erica went shopping for a birthday gift for one of Erica's friends' birthday parties later that day. Okay. And later that day, the plan was that Michael was going to be home, and he was going to stay home with Ryan while Erica and Anna went to the kid's birthday party. So Anne went to her mom's house, dropped off Ryan, and let me see what time they got there. They got to the house around 10 o'clock in the morning, and Bernice said that 
Anne and Erica left to go to the mall, go to Sears, which is important because he also went to Sears. And while they were gone, she fed and watched TV with Ryan from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Mm-hmm. Right as the show was ending is when Erica and Anna came back from shopping. They chit-chatted for a little bit. Doesn't think that it was maybe more than five to ten minutes. And they left around 12.15 to 12.30 at the most. Her timeline is important, but it's also important how she doesn't remember. <laughs> because it, 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 it can make or break a thing, right? Right. So from the travel time from mother's house to back to her house, to Anna's house, it's a seven-minute drive. And from the Curry's house to the Kmart, which also becomes important because we know that he was there at 1255, is a 13-minute drive. And at this point, when the police got to the crime scene or got um, and met Michael at the crime scene, he was completely, there was not a single drop of blood on him at all, whatsoever. He kept changing his stories about what happened that day. What happened when he walked in? A couple of things that he went through that he kept messing up or he just kept going back and forth on. He said that he normally walked in to the through the kitchen door, but we know that the trash can was there. And But that day, he said that when he got home from work, there was a yellow flyer on the front door that caught his eye that was on the storm door. So when he got out of his car, he went directly through the front door instead of going through his normal kitchen way. And he said that when he walked in, he saw Anna's purse and dumped it out for no reason. Also, he kind of slipped Literally up. makes zero sense. No sense. And then he also, this is important because it, the prosecutors leaned on this hard when he was first being interrogated. And we understand he was high emotional state at this point, but it was probably a Freudian slip when he said, I walked in that morning through the front door because I saw the flyer. Oh. Yes. So then okay. he also said that he he went in and he sat down um, before no, realizing that his family had been brutally murdered. He also said that he came in and then he immediately saw them and he saw Erica's little body and then he knelt down beside her, beside her and then after that he left to the neighbor's house. Worth noting, the blood that had been pulled around Erica's little body was absolutely undisturbed. There's, so he did not kneel down beside nope, her. There's no signs that knelt, got close, felt for a pulse, nothing. There is no clo- no blood on his clothes whatsoever, no blood on his shoes. The bush axe that had been used very evidently on, on the murder, that was the murder weapon, was owned by him. He had just bought it a couple weeks ago. Before the murder, he said he kept it in the back part of the house. And so there's no denying that he owned it. Uh, It's not a foreign weapon that was brought into a house by a random person or anything. It had been completely wiped clean. No fingerprints whatsoever on the handle of the bush axe. Now, one would think that... How stupid do you have to be to, like, leave the murder weapon there? Right. Not only that, but if he admittedly owns it and has used it, has handled it, you why aren't think, his fingerprints? Why aren't on his it? fingerprints on there? Right. So either 
Although there's gloves, or if someone did use it, they w- could have wiped it clean. Yeah, if they're wiping it clean anyway, right. it's gonna. And then he said that when he left the house to go call the police, when he ran over to the neighbor's house, he used the kitchen door. We know that's not possible because of the debris of the glass and the garbage can that would have at least left a trace that he left that through those doors. Mm-hmm. So it was just troubling that he was not being consistent in any type of way what his story was right it just wasn't adding up with what the crime scene looked like exactly so after that because there was no evidence putting him at the scene no blood evidence no fingerprints no anything kind of dna or anything the case went cold the case went cold they had absolutely no suspects of course of course they did suspect him but they never brought him on any charges right at that point um they he moved to a different part of Georgia and he got a job at a I believe a school, like a janitor at a school. And because he has nothing at his record, they I, let him apply. Well and I think moving away is always kinda like a a weird red flag. Like when you just like up and leave. Yep. After cashing the life insurances on all three of them. Oh yep. There's life insurance on babies? On Ryan. Erica and Ann, not on Tyler. Right, but on kids, mm-hmm. that's weird. Yeah, yeah. I right, I'm right, yes. right. Okay, no, that's it's, weird. It's weird. Yeah, you don't it's have life weird. insurance on your kids. No, um, I mean you ha- you can have like medical incidental insurance, like Aflac or something like that, where like oh, a kid falls off a bike right. and they need a cast. But or something. life insurance. But life insurance, that's a little much. I feel yeah. like that should be illegal yeah, to take out life insurance on a child. So eventually, um, because they, they did keep putting some pressure on him, he did admit that he was having an affair. Now, most people say that he was a piece of shit husband um, and that he had previous problems. He had previous drug addictions. He had been recovered, although he admittedly still used marijuana, which is fine by me. I don't care. But um, they said that he just was disconnected to his family and... For example, with his third pregnancy, Anne had some complications that she needed to go to the doctor for and just needed to get seen, like an emergency scene, and he wouldn't even take her. She had to, like, drive herself to go get seen. But it was during one of these visits that he did show up for that he, they, there was a spark between him and a co-worker. I say co-worker because they worked in the same hospital, but I don't think they knew each other before he had to be in the same office for the OB. Okay, so he met this lady named Pam Burt. She was um, she was married to Fred Burt, and they hit it off. They started dating, and one of these um, nights that they were having an affair, they went to a local restaurant and then to a hotel. Her husband came knocking on the hotel door to confirm that she was cheating. He just wanted to confirm that she was cheating. It wasn't a big blowout because Pam and Fred had already had some, um, what do you call that, differences and had been separated. So although married, they had been separated. And Michael was trying to say that Fred threatened him and said that he would hurt him without even touching him. So he was trying to imply that Fred was so mad because of the cheating that he would hurt his family. Right. Now, so Fred had an alibi. 
And he passed a polygraph test. So they completely ruled him out. And Fred was like, listen, I was just trying to confirm my marriage was over. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly okay. what was happening. He's like, I, and I'll circle back to Fred because he come, he does come back into play later. So from there, um, like I said, the case went cold and nothing much is happening. So it's not till 2008 that there's a new DA in town that gets elected in. And this DA, you know, probably had some ulterior motives to be doing this, to dig into old, you know, cold cases and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but she at least wanted to put some fresh eyes on a cold case that had haunted the town for, at sure. this point, 24 years. Right. So for 24 years, this laid dormant. So they reopened the case. They put a new set of eyes on it. And everything, although circumstantial, is leading up to Michael. Like, there's no way about it. His timeline is bullshit. There's so many gaps in the story. Um, All the, you know, even the him going back and forth, like, I did this, I did that. You know, I jumped out the purse for no reason. Oh, I didn't touch the purse. Although, if he's an asshole husband, I could see a paranoid asshole husband coming in and just dumping out the purse just to be an ass. Yeah. With the wife dead already, though? (laughs) Why would you do that? True, 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 true. <laughs> good point, good point, good point. He's like, comes in, sees dead body. It's like, right. here, let me dump out her purse. Right. After 24 years, they the DA took this to a grand jury, and the grand jury indicted him on, I believe it was like six charges in total. So some of the charges included murder, aggravated assault, and feticide, which I had never heard of before. Really? Yeah. It makes oh. sense. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but Is it feticide or feticide? It might be feticide. I think it's feticide. Feticide. And eventually, uh, when they were going in for arraignment and all that, they eventually dropped the feticide charges because it was not a charge that was even available in Georgia when the murder happened. Okay. So eventually he was put on trial for murder and aggravated assault. Now, he had some contentions that were just um shoddy (laughs) um his i mean his defense wanted to say that there was because of the 24 year delay it was going to be prejudicial and there was not enough evidence preserved and whatnot he had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was actual prejudice because of the time delay or that it would deliberately affect the outcome of the case he couldn't. They right. couldn't do that. Um, they also, he alleged, and his defense alleged, that the state failed to preserve an alleged confession by a mental patient in 1986. Okay. The mental patient was confined at the time of the statement. They couldn't find a copy of the actual statement that the mental patient gave to the officer but they could find written references of it and the recantation of it but they couldn't find the actual statement of okay it. now the patient and the officer at the time that this was brought to trial in 2009 they were both available to be put on the stand but okay. the prosecution chose not to call them so i think you know like we've seen before this is someone who is going through a mental health crisis and yeah. for claiming the fame one of million reasons, right, is confessing to a murder that they're not even involved in. Yeah. I don't even know if this is someone 
that was in Georgia or not. It sounds like it was someone local. And because of the notoriety of this, you know, three-person murder. Right. Um, I think it would have been inevitable for someone to see it in the news, in the newspapers, for someone talking down. So yeah. that's how I see it. Now, the... So Anne's mother... Anne's mother took the stand at the time of trial and she was very, um, she tugged on the emotional heartstrings for the jury. Uh, one of the things that she was noted saying on the stand was that after the funeral for all three of them or four of them, that she asked Michael, do you have any idea who could have done this or why someone would have done this? And he stayed silent. So... It could be seen one way or another, you know, yeah. either he's so distraught that he has nothing to say or doesn't even know yeah, how to speak right now. But it's been 24 right years right. at this point. Like, right. And, oh, he also alleged that the prosecution or the state did not do enough to absolve him of anything um, because although they did track down and he voluntarily gave him his receipt of his Kmart purchase... They didn't go and search for the receipt of her purchase mm-hmm. of the birthday gift to get her, like a better timestamp of everything. So another thing worth noting is that for the Kmart cashier, she said that when he came in, he was completely drenched in sweat. And yes, it is hot that day in Georgia. Yeah. But she said if he was in the store for even five minutes, he would have been just as cold as everyone here working it gets so cold that most employees even wear sweaters on their shift. Yes. Just because the yes. AC is blasting. I so. literally, when I go to Florida in the summertime, I take jackets mm-hmm. and wear those out in public. In the store. Cause, yeah, because I know it's going to be freezing everywhere. Yeah. And at his office at work, there was a whiteboard where you can check out the hospital vehicles for transportation and whatnot. And he was the one in charge of this, too. And on the whiteboard, there was his name, and you can see that it was erased at 940 that he had taken out a vehicle, and nothing else was disturbed on the whiteboard. It was just the line with his checkout that was erased. So that was seen as an attempt of him covering up that he'd even taken out a vehicle whatsoever. Interesting. Because maybe the prosecution, you know, is alleging that at some point, maybe he contemplating saying, I'm, I was at work all day. Mm, okay. Yeah. So the medical, the original medical examiner that had the case couldn't pinpoint the time of death. He just put it sometime in the PM between 2.30 and 3 PM. So by the time that the trial went on in 2009, that medical examiner had passed away. So a new medical examiner had was brought in and was the one that actually testified in trial. And he testified that the time of death actually could not accurately be determined because of the temperature in the home and because of her medical condition, which is pregnancy. Yeah. So it would have had some kind of effect on the decomposition of the bodies or just the state of the bodies at the time. So his best guess was that the murders took place sometime late morning or early afternoon. So anywhere between like 12 to 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Okay. Okay. And remember that flyer I told you about that was on the screen door, the yellow flyer that caught his attention to go through the front door? 
That was a flyer that was left by Energy Savers of Georgia. Now, the detectives contacted that company, and they confirmed that they were in that neighborhood in the vicinities between 12 and 2 p.m. Okay. And when they wrote down everything in the crime scene, you know, they, they did their detailed report, that yellow piece of paper was found on the bed in the master bedroom, which is, again, straying from the path that he said he took when he came into the house. He would have had to go past the kitchen and den to get to the master bedrooms Mm -hmm. to lay this piece of paper down. So the theory for the prosecution is that he did go to work that day. He did leave at 940 in the morning. Because he knew that Anne and Erica were going to be going to Sears that morning, he went there to make sure that everything was still going to his plan. And then he was going to follow them home to meet them there at the same time. So when he got, so when Erica and the kids got home at around 1230 or 1215, they, he ambushed them, murdered them, and then ran off to Kmart and bought the first six inch oscillating fan he found and ran back to work. That's their theory. All all because he was having an affair? No. There's no, like, motive or anything like that? The motive was just financial because of the financial troubles that they were having. And then he eventually cashed in on on the life policies. Ugh. Isn't that weird? So... The reason why they're thinking that there was no clothes, no blood on his clothes is that he was wearing some type of overalls and that's why everyone at work confirmed he was wearing the same clothes that he was wearing in the morning later on the afternoon is because he dumped them on his way to Kmart. So there's that. But you'd think he'd have like blood on his hands. Although I guess if he wiped his little blade clean and all that kind of stuff. He had some kind of I mean, he would have been moving. Something. There was some scratches on his arm, and the way that he explained this was that this was between, this happened during the scuffle that he had with his neighbor, with his neighbor trying to calm him down. Mm -hmm. So he explained those scratches on his arms to Paul Jr., Paul Gable Jr. Um, Let me see here. Okay. So while they were on trial, there was also an ex-fiance of his before Anne that testified that there was, he was a very um, aggressive person. And that one time he was so mad that he put a staple gun to her head and threatened to shoot her with the staple gun. And that's ultimately why she left that relationship. That would be a red flag. Yeah, you think? Ah. Also, just like good for the women that just they Leave. recognize those red flags and they get out yes i understand it's not yeah and it could be at any point too it yeah. could be red flag one or 25 as yes. long as you're trying to leave it doesn't matter yeah get um, out ladies so fred burt pam burt's husband was put on the stand and he said exactly that that he was just trying to confirm that his marriage was over he admittedly said that he hadn't been a good husband, a good friend to his then wife, Pam. So he was complacent, okay, with the relationship that she was having and he in no way threatened um, his family or anything like that. 
Now, Pam was put on the stand as well, and she testified that Michael seemed like a loving husband, even though he was having an affair, that he loved his children, and he said to Pam that if ever him and Anne were to get a divorce, he would try for custody for the kids. Okay. So there was a, you know, back and forth on whether or not he was a good father or not, but nonetheless, um, ultimately, due to the circumstantial evidence, he was, oh, wait, let me go back. His defense also tried to, this is, this was interesting to me just because I enjoy <laughs> the, the legal jargon. So I learned something new, which is corpus delicti, which is the, the body of crime of the, of the crime itself. Okay. So someone that is put on the stand for a crime has the right to shine light or bring into evidence other people's crimes or someone else if they feel that it would absolve them of the crime that they're being accused of. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense. So Paul Edward Gable Jr., the front door neighbor that, you know, set him down, had his mom call 911. Mm -hmm. He's saying that years after the murder happened, he went and knocked on the door of the old Curry house so the new tenants and knew that the 15 year old daughter was alone and that no husband or male or father figure was in the house at that time mm -hmm. and forced himself on that 15 year old girl. Okay. He also said that he went out of the country and had been convicted of a rape to another young woman. I mean, and this was just all too, you know, shine that light on someone else. Right, right, right. Um, although they did let him admit it because the crimes were different. Although it, Mr. Gable obviously did some wrong shit. Mm -hmm. Not the same as murdering someone with an axe. True that, true that, true that. So uh, the, they're both bad crimes. <laughs> yeah. But very different types of crimes. And, yes. You know, we've discussed here that once you're, once you have your mo you're likely to stick to that because although it there gets is, you off or you know whatever there's a pattern of escalation that can happen that's true so, too but, but that's a pretty intense escalation but what he's saying is it went from murder rape rape oh it de-escalated because it was after right okay that makes murders. sense mm -hmm. no you're right that that would be his only murder and then he would never do it again right that doesn't even make yeah you're right that doesn't right. make sense so it de-escalated so after all that, Mr. Michael Curry is currently serving three consecutive, oh, he was convicted. Three consecutive life sentences all right. for this. So yeah, he is definitely in jail right now. In prison. In prison. Sorry. Prison. Um, his jury was formed by 10 women, two men, and it started on 4-20-2011, but eventually they, they did find him guilty for all three all three charges. Wow. So it went it went cold for a really long time. What? Oh, sorry. So this was in 2011 that he was convicted? Yes. They arrested him in 2009 on March something. Uh, sorry, May 20th, 2009. So now I'm like, okay, so Victoria's email, was she living... She wasn't living by them when the crime happened. No, 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 no. But no. was in the same neighborhood... That the crime happened in by the time he was arrested? I think so. Okay. Yeah. 
So I think that's why she'll I message she, us and clear it up. I, think I know it, she I will. I think it said that she didn't know it was in the same neighborhood till afterwards. Okay. So it's very likely that if he got arrested while she was in that neighborhood, people were like, that's the house or something like that. Yeah. So Victoria, let us know. <laughs> there are certain people that I like, I recognize their names and I know they'll like follow up. They or will. Say, yeah, yeah. And she's one of them. I'm like, I know she'll message us. <laughs> So, yeah, that's the story. It went cold for a really, really, really long time, two and a half decades before that's anyone crazy. did anything. And sadly, you know, it's it's one of, it's fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, it got some closure and the DA did something about it. Unfortunately, they let it, you know, they it dormant happened. for yeah. so long and there were people murdered and, you know, little kids murdered. But and so freaking um aggressively too yeah like with a uh, with an axe like god damn like make yeah it, like uh, this sounds terrible but there is like have some mercy about it if you're gonna be a terrible human being yeah like i don't take me out slow no don't no, take me no, out slow no, like no, that no, no that's why drowning or fire is like one of my worst fears i'm like no if i want if i'm gonna die like it's just... <laughs> oh you're gonna hate our next episode god <laughs> Great. <laughs> but no, this one, um, it I had lots of notes on it because I and I and I love these. So thanks again, Victoria. I couldn't find it on anything but one podcast. Um, and I found like one 10 minute YouTube on it. And I was like, why the hell is there not more coverage on yeah. this? Um, uh, I understand it seems pretty, you know, open and shut, but it isn't. It wasn't. There's these time gaps and these, you know, there's no evidence of him being in the room and there's And like you said, it sounds like he was mostly convicted on circumstantial oh, evidence. A hundred percent circumstantial. Yeah. There was nothing putting him at the scene. And you know other how than... I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there's just there's just things that some things just don't add up. Yeah. And the prosecution was able to to win even with those things not adding up 100%. Yeah. Um, which is weird. It always makes me uneasy. It, that, yeah. I'm such um, a bleeding heart, though. I'm like, yeah. I don't want one innocent person to be convicted of anything they shouldn't be. You know, but for this one, I think maybe it wasn't um, so outwardly ready that you know, this is why, like his motive, like you said, like what was his motive? Yeah. And I think that's why it's the, 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 you can't see the whole puzzle because Mm -hmm. you don't really know why he would have done it. It's not, he, he did remarry eventually in 2006, but it's not like he immediately went and had another family or he went and got together with Pam right away, you know, or, you know, took the kids and, and didn't, um, and just the mom was killed or whatnot. So the reason behind it, it's not very clear. Not we want to understand the killer, but it it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and again, so brutally, it 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 doesn't make sense on why so brutally, um, because there were you know multiple multiple lacerations and puncture puncture wounds, which is weird. Um, with with this uh, essentially like a machete type type yeah, blade. Yeah, that's right. Oh. 20 inch blade that's it's like the size of my leg so yeah that's just haunting so yeah that's the story story of the curry family from georgia thanks again victoria keep them coming guys all right i think um, that's it for today no yes if you would like to get story priority 
for a case that you would like covered, you have to be a member of the Patreon group Murder Lovers. Once you're a member of that, you can DM us uh, through the app or however else and just put Patreon request and your story and we will prioritize it and cover it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okie dokie. And all the links for Patreon and uh, social media will be in the show notes. So hit the description box of each episode and you'll see it all in there. Cool. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.